Chapter Twenty One of The Return of Alfred by Herbert George Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Twenty One. Marjorie hears the news. One. Margie, Margie, where are you? Eric dashed across the lawn of the Grange as if the seven deadly sins were pursuing him. Marjorie appeared at the French windows of the morning room, of which she had taken possession since Lady Warren's departure. Eric made towards her at full tilt. She turned back into the grey room out of the sun's glare, Eric following. "'Such a fight!' he gasped, as he threw himself down into Lady Warren's favourite chair. "'It—' "'A fight?' she turned suddenly. "'Who? What?' The colour had left her cheeks. She was conscious that she was trembling. "'Smith and Thurk!' he panted. "'I've run all the way! I've—' He paused from sheer lack of oxygen. "'Tell me, Eric!' She dropped into the nearest chair, conscious of a curious sensation of weakness in her knees. "'Tell me, Eric,' she repeated, a note of sharpness in her voice. "'All right,' he panted. "'Let a fellow get his wind first. I've run all the way to tell you, and Mrs. Hicks gave me treacle-pudding for lunch.' "'Is—' "'Is he hurt?' she interrupted, conscious that even to herself her voice sounded strange. "'Hurt?' cried Eric. "'You should have seen him, all blood and grunts!' And his eyes sparkled at the recollection of the Homeric encounter he had been privileged to witness. A lot of them thought he was dead at first. "'Oh!' she cried faintly. "'Where is he? Have they taken him to the vicarage? "'Oh, Eric!' she added, conscious that he was looking at her curiously. Suddenly he grinned. Having realized her mistake, he decided to delay the dramatic revelation. Like a good wine, it would improve with keeping. "'Knocked him clean out, like old Cobb. Oh, Margie, you've missed the—' "'Don't, Eric, please.' She turned her head aside with a shudder. "'They were trying to bring him to with a bucket of water when I left,' he added. "'Is he much hurt?' In her mind's eye she saw a bruised and bleeding face, out of which gazed a pair of reproachful blue eyes. He had remained to show her he was not afraid.' If she had urged him to go away, he would have gone. Perhaps he would have gone if she had not said anything at all. It was all her fault. Of course he couldn't hope to. Old End wanted Postle to run him in. The words seemed to break through the curtain of her thoughts. You should have seen the vicar, he continued, gloating over the episodes of the afternoon in retrospect. Rare old sport. He and I kept the ring. If we hadn't, he'd have lost, crowding him like a— "'Whatever are you talking about?' cried Marjorie, totally at sea as a result of Eric's scare-headlined form of conversation. "'The vicar told old End that he was the—what you call it, and—who? "'Thurk, of course. You want your brain sprinkling, Margie. I'm telling you, and you keep on saying who and what. I'm jolly well going to get him to teach me.' "'Who? Teach you what?' she stammered. "'There you go again. Who? What?' he mimicked. We're not playing how, when, and where. I tell you, it was the biggest thing that ever was. Knocked carp and dump into a tea-fight. My hat! You should have seen old Thurk go down. It— Eric, tell— There you— Marjorie jumped up, and, gripping his arm, shook him impatiently. Who went down? she demanded almost fiercely. Thurk! Let go! You're hurting! he yelled. She released his arm but continued to stand over him. He hadn't a chance. Smith got him on the point, and he went down like a sack. It was spiff. 
Marjorie felt the blood flood to her face, then drain away again. She sank on to the arm of Eric's chair, clutching at the back for support. In a vague way she was conscious that Eric was adding details to what he had already told her. He was filling in the lacunae in his previous story. She seemed able to visualize the village street as if from a height with its dark crowd of pressing, peering humanity. In the center two men were gasping, panting, moving. One was dark, his face threatening and blood-stained. The other was fair, a determined light in his blue eyes. She even heard the thud of blows. She saw the dark man stagger. She clutched. "'Let go my hair!' In a flash the picture was gone, and she found herself clutching a handful of Eric's fiery-colored hair. "'What's the matter with you today, Margie?' he demanded as he wrapped his sore scarp. "'You off your crump!' Suddenly she put an arm round his neck and drew his head towards her. He wriggled loose and, jumping up from the chair, made for the door, announcing his intention of conveying the good news to Willis and Mrs. Higgs. He had suddenly realized that someone might anticipate him, and it was almost like another fight, hurling these dramatic bombs about and watching them explode. Marjorie did not tell him that she had just sent Willis down to the village for news. 2. The remainder of the afternoon was spent by little Bilstead in soul-searching and mutual recrimination. When Postle had arrived upon the scene, it was to find the biggest crowd he ever remembered to have seen in little Bilstead. In the centre of it were the vicar and Smith on their knees beside the prostrate form of Bob Thurkettle, bringing him to by chafing his limbs and sponging his face with cold water from a bucket. The sight of Postle seemed to bring to Colonel Enderby a realisation of his responsibilities. He promptly demanded to know the meaning of the policeman's absence at the very hour the little Bilstead had been most in need of his professional services. Postle tilted his helmet on to the back of his head and proceeded to rub his chin with a pad of his right thumb as he gazed at the business-like ministrations of the vicar and Smith upon the inert figure of the redoubtable Thurkettle. "'He's copped it a rummin,' was his thought, his sporting instincts triumphing over his official discretion. It soon became manifest, however, that the colonel had his rag out, as Postle was wont to express it to himself, sometimes in his more expensive moments, even to his intimates.' Colonel Enderby let himself go. The curry had digested indifferently well, and he was conscious that he had been shouting encouragements to the vanquished champion. As a result, when Bob Thurkettle at length opened his eyes, it was to find that another battle was being waged over his recumbent form. Colonel Enderby had demanded the arrest of Smith, had threatened to report Postle, and promised little Bilstead dire penalties for its lapse into Bolshevism as he regarded this open flouting of his views and opinions. Murmurs of, "'Give over!' "'The dozzy fuel!' and "'Hold your nose!' were to be heard on all sides. Colonel Enderby looked about him in astonishment. He was an autocrat, getting his first whiff of revolution. That afternoon little Bilstead made it abundantly clear to him that any man who desired the presence of a policeman to spoil the most enjoyable fight of their lives was worthy neither of his position as an officer nor the respect accorded to a gentleman. At length he fled, or, as he regarded it, withdrew with flags flying and drums beating. He even returned the enemy's fire, but his aim was bad, and his ammunition defective, as the frequent laughs at his expense testified. As Mrs. Spellman remarked the next day to Mrs. Pelham, who had missed everything, "'It was really most embarrassing. Fortunately, I didn't know the meaning of a lot of the words the Colonel used, but I'm sure they were dreadful. 
when Smith saw that there was no longer any doubt about Thurkettle coming around, he rose, and, with a word to Nudd about what to do, linked his arm through that of the vicar, and led him in the direction of the vicarage. He was anxious to get a hot bath, conscious that his shoulder was already manifesting an unpleasant tendency to stiffen. It was not until Thurkettle had dropped with a thud in the roadway that he realized that the taller of the two figures that had been so active in keeping the ring was no other than the vicar. He realized that, but for the old man's presence, coupled with his obvious knowledge of the requirements of a quick-footed fighter, it would, in all probability, have been he, and not Thurkettle, who would have taken the count. Several times the vicar murmured something that to Smith was unintelligible. At length, however, he distinguished that it was a repetition of his unvarying refrain when dissatisfied with his own conduct. "'I must really see the bishop.' He realized that the old man was passing through the fire of self-reproach for his part in the afternoon's happenings. As they came opposite the gate of the Grange, Willis was standing just inside by the lodge. Smith paused, the vicar continuing his way, as if unconscious that he were not alone. "'Did you see him, Mr. Alfred?' Willis asked in a hoarse whisper, looking anxiously about lest someone should overhear. "'Did I see whom?' asked Smith, as he lighted his cigarette. "'Bob Thurkettle, sir.' "'I did.' "'Did he?' He paused in his eagerness. "'He did, my good Willis, and instead of killing the fatted calf, he strove to slay the prodigal instead.' "'What did he do, Mr. Alfred? Did he—did he threaten to—' He hesitated. "'I'm afraid I loosened most of his teeth, Willis.' "'You didn't fight him, sir.' His eyes travelled over Smith's face and figure, as if for the signs of defeat he felt must be there. "'I'm afraid I did,' said Smith with a smile. "'And you beat him, sir?' "'That, I think, was the general impression.' He was amused at the old man's eagerness. "'You beat Bob Thurkettle, Mr. Alfred.' There was incredulity in his tone. "'When I left him he was lying on his back, just coming to, and trying to puzzle out how it had all happened.' "'Mr. Alfred! Mr. Alfred!' was all Willis could say. "'When I heard you had gone, I thought—I thought he would kill you.' "'And were you coming to save me, Willis?' "'I was just going down to the village, sir,' he said simply. "'I couldn't stay in the house.' Willis was a bad liar, but he realized that he could not say that Miss Marjorie had sent him. "'Well, I'm all right, you see,' Smith smiled. "'Now I must try and catch up with the vicar.' And he passed on up the road, leaving Willis gazing after him, a look in his eyes that plainly spoke the hero-worship in his heart. As he entered the vicarage, he heard the vicar saying, "'But, Hannah, I have a distinct recollection of feeling satisfaction when he was knocked out. I even think I said splendid. I must see the bishop, Hannah. I fear I am not worthy.' to be the shepherd of a flock. "'Well?' she demanded, as Smith approached, the vicar seizing the opportunity to escape to his study. "'What is this, I hear?' There was something almost like a twinkle in her eyes, he thought. "'I have been carrying the sweetening process to its logical conclusion,' he replied gravely. "'At least, I hope it's the conclusion.' "'I hope you realize that you have involved the vicar in a parish scandal.' I understand he acted as a sort of master of the ceremonies. She had heard the story from Janet, who learned everything almost as soon as it happened, for Janet was comely, 
possessed of many admirers, and loved scandal. Without waiting for a reply, Miss Lipscombe turned and led the way into the drawing-room, where she seated herself in the most upright chair it contained, folded her hands before her, and waited. In a few words Smith outlined what had taken place, and how he had been involved in the fight in spite of himself. "'And that is what you call sweetening a man's memory, is it?' she demanded, when he had finished. "'It was part of the process,' he admitted. "'Your methods savour of the Mohammedan,' was the retort. "'May I inquire what is the next step you propose?' she inquired dryly. "'To pursue the analogy,' he said, "'my Hagira. I'm leaving Little Bilston in a day or two. Leaving? There was surprise in her tone. Yes. Why? The sweetening process is almost concluded. Fiddlesticks, she cried. Just because you've thrashed a bully, you think— She paused. What will Lady Warren say when she returns? I hope to be able to give her news of her son. Miss Lipscombe's rigid figure seemed to become even more rigid. She continued to regard him, keen inquiry in her eyes. "'I believe Alfred Warren to be dead, and—' He paused. "'And?' She stopped suddenly, her hand raised to her heart. "'I think I shall be able to prove it,' he added quietly. "'But I would rather say nothing more at present.' For some time neither spoke. It was Smith who finally broke the silence. "'We only know the Alfred Warren of up to 1914.' he said, as if to himself. Perhaps he left the sentence unfinished. I've often wondered, she said, an unusual note of softness in her voice. I was fond of him, Mr. Smith, she added a little huskily. You see, I was his godmother. Is that why you wanted to see his memory sweetened? he inquired. Perhaps it was, she admitted. I'm a selfish old woman, but it's done you no harm. Her tone was that of inquiry rather than assertion. He shook his head. It was difficult to express exactly what Alfred Warren had done for him. He now seemed to see quite a lot of things in detail that hitherto had been either outlines or mere blurs. He could no longer contemplate a life such as he had led before the war. There must be action, progression. He must— He was to have married Marjorie— the words seemed to scatter his thoughts like a dog, a lot of hens. He? Who? he asked vaguely, although conscious of who it was she meant. Alfred, she said. At least that was Lady Warren's wish. And Marjorie? He could not restrain the question. She was too young at the time to know, was the reply. Perhaps she was being reserved for someone else, she added. And now go and get changed out of your fighting clothes. There are soda scones for tea. As he walked slowly upstairs, it was of Marjorie he was thinking, not of Miss Lipscombe's soda scones, although they had been made specially for him as his favourite tea-table dainty. Married to Marjorie, he muttered as he closed his door. Perhaps that was why. End of chapter 21